Hi, I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and I destroyed my best friend's purple car in a fit of pique, but he has insurance. And I did him a favor. I mean, come on. We are here today to talk about Two to Go, the 21st episode of Season 6. It aired on May 21st, 2002, and was written by Douglas Petrie, with Rebecca Rand Kirshner and Stephen S. DeKnight as story editors. This episode was directed by Bill Norton, a director whose name we haven't seen before on Buffy and who we won't see again, although he did do a handful of Angel episodes, including the much-reviled Happy Anniversary and the much better That Vision Thing. But those issues were about the script, not the directing. In Two to Go, Norton conducts himself honorably, taking us into both familiar and unfamiliar spaces without letting the direction get in the way of what turns out to be a barn buster of a story. Here we are now. Entertain us. Son of a- Two to go is the connective tissue between last week's villains and next week's grave, the second act in a three-parter. Typically, the second act is the act of industry, where all the hard work and sweat and heavy lifting happens to carry the escalating tensions, escalate them further, and then hand them off to the more exciting third act. As any of the writers in the audience know, the second act in a three-act story is usually the grunt work. It's not as fun to write, and it's not as fun to watch. It lacks the wonder and potential of the first act in which a story is set up and launched, and it lacks the excitement and thrill and satisfaction of the climax and resolution in the third act. The second act is necessary in order to get the full effect of the story, but usually just not as much fun. It's the two towers. It's Iron Man 2. It's the middle child. Now, don't get upset, middle children. You're lovely. It's just a metaphor. I'm sorry your mom never finished your baby book. Two to Go definitely has that middle child weight upon it, but there are wonderful things happening here that can be hard to see if you're not looking for them. I've never traditionally enjoyed Two to Go much in the past. I was too drained by villains and too ready for everything to be resolved in Grave. But this time, viewing critically, I gotta tell you, it's like a completely different experience. When all I'm thinking about is, I want my Willow back, this episode feels interminable. When I'm thinking about identity stories, internal conflict, autonomy, and our traditionally less active characters like Anya and Dawn, I'm stunned by how truly good this episode is. Once again, Doug Petrie has made me fall in love with him as a writer. To be that good and yet not be flashy about it, damn, what's he doing now? I must watch it all. All right, let's get into the weeds. You were out of the trio a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And you want to know why, little feller? No respect for the chain of command. When Willow comes for them, one of the first things Andrew says is, we didn't do anything, which is patently untrue. Jonathan calls him on it, which is nice. Jonathan's connection to reality, although delayed, is his path to redemption, and it's nice to see. But then when you get to the truck chase, the differences between Jonathan and Andrew become even more stark, and it's kind of awesome. Andrew once again says they didn't do anything, and Buffy hits him in the face. I'm not usually one for Buffy hitting humans. She's really strong. But if any regular human ever deserved to get hit in the face by the Slayer, it's Andrew in this moment. And then we've got Jonathan assessing the situation, recognizing that Willow is draining of her power, and commanding Xander to keep going, knowing that it'll be okay. Or at least that Willow isn't going to be able to kill them right now. As the driver regains control of his truck, Andrew says, cool, as though he's watching a movie. 
He's still caught up in the narrative of it all, even now, even as the vehicle he's in is being descended upon by 40 tons of Mack truck and a magical force that is powerful beyond all comprehension. He calls Willow Dark Phoenix, a truck-driving Magic Mama, and Darth Willow. It's like he's had some kind of story-generating LASIK surgery, and now he can't see anything without a narrative filter on it, even his own impending doom. This also allows him to pretend that he didn't do anything, that he's not responsible, that he's a victim. Because there's nothing we love more in narrative than clarity. A clear bad guy, a clear victim, it's so simple. When things are not simple, when they are complex and complicated, especially when we find ourselves playing both villain and victim, it's confusing. It's hard. You have to think. Sometimes we don't want to do that. Sometimes we can't face the truth involved in doing that. And Andrew is such a wonderful, if annoying and stupid representation of that situation that even in his most vile moments, I can't help but love him. Although a lot of that is Tom Lank's performance, I gotta tell you, it is so much fun loving these actors. The joy they put in my heart is such a gift. Even when their characters are being awful, these actors on Buffy, my God, it's a rare thing to get this much talent in one little space. The divergence between Andrew and Jonathan plays out until at the end we get Jonathan standing up to Andrew, putting a sword to his throat as Andrew threatens Xander. I don't know if this is a deliberate callback to Superstar in which we saw Jonathan play at being a hero, but the subtle difference in Danny Strong's performance between then and now is absolutely beautiful. In Superstar, Jonathan was playing at being a hero. Here, being a hero isn't even on the table for him. He's just a guy finally beginning to understand who he really is, and finally doing what's right. At least for the moment. What exactly is coming? One of the many things in this world you are not prepared to deal with. <laughs> that a fact? Yes, and we're running out of time. So just believe me when I tell you, these things are real, they're dangerous, and they're coming. <sighs> Anya is my girl. For every time she was misused and forced to play the role of the comedy mule, this is when they make up for it. Anya's strength and capability as she's once again returned to her power, to her identity, her demon roots, it's amazing. We've been talking a lot about vengeance, about how it's bad, about demons and how they're mostly bad. But let's take a closer look at Anya. When she was human, she was a joke. She carried the goofy like a mule through three seasons of this show, just being funny and rarely having anything more interesting to do. But now, I mean, look at her. She's calm and strong, rushing to Jonathan and Andrew in the police station, explaining the situation to them, and then telling the cop what was going on. After Buffy breaks Andrew and Jonathan out of jail, Anya stays to face Willow, Dark Willow, the woman she just witnessed flaying a man in the forest. Anya stayed. Now, granted, Anya has, I think we can assume, done or at least seen her fair share of flaying in her day, but that just means that she knows and understands Willow in a way probably no one else can. And even though she falls to Willow's power and probably knows that's exactly the risk she's taking, she takes it. She stands up. She gets knocked down. And later, she stands up again, reading from the anti-magic book and providing the only power so far that has even been able to slow Willow down. God damn it. She's awesome. In the magic box with Xander, when he questions whether or not she'd use the coming fight as an opportunity for revenge, showing just how much Xander does not know or has ever known Anya, she is so clear and vulnerable in her response. There is nothing in this world that would give me greater or more lasting satisfaction than to reap bloody vengeance upon you, Xander Harris. But I can't. Not officially, not magically. 
So smile, it's your lucky day. You got away with it, I can't hurt you. Right, because you varnishing the table with Spike. How could that possibly have hurt? It may have chafed. That wasn't vengeance. It was solace. This is a woman who knows herself, understands her motivations, and has reconnected with who and what she is. She's powerful. She lost Xander and got herself back. And even as it's a demonic self, I can't help but cheer. When I talk about vulnerability in my classes, I talk about the four main sources of vulnerability. Love, shame, fear, and identity. Anya, for the past three years, lost her own identity and then replaced her identity with Xander. She lived with him. She lived for him. The fantasy of their life together. She withstood his barbs and lack of respect because he became her identity. But now, even though it might seem a tragedy that Anya turned back to her old vengeful ways, what I'm seeing is someone who's reclaimed who she is, has once again defined herself on her own terms, and has found her way back. I can't be sad about that. Maybe I will someday, but hot damn. Today is not that day. Boys, if you don't knock it off, I will pull this car over and you can just walk to your painful desk from here. Xander's been a bit of a problem for a long time, not just this season. While I've always loved him, despite his behavior, find me a man who can make me laugh and I'm pretty much going to whistle past everything else. I'm working on it. I really feel for him here. As the only one in the group without superpowers, now that Anya's gone all vengeance demon, his helplessness is palpable, not just to us, but to him. His love for Willow runs so strong, and watching this happen without having the power needed to make a real difference? It's got to be frustrating. For those of us who fell in love with quippy funny Xander and had to whistle through all of the crappy stuff, the love is starting to pay off. When he pulls up in the stolen police car to rescue Buffy, Andrew, and Jonathan, it's a good moment for him. You can miss it because we don't see it, but Xander just broke into, hot-wired, and stole a fucking police vehicle, y'all. That's badass. I mean, I'm not recommending that people steal police cars under ordinary circumstances, but these circumstances are not ordinary. And in the face of all of this, Xander is stepping up. I took a couple of swings at Nick Brendan in some previous episodes of Still Pretty because when we needed Xander to be vulnerable, he couldn't really pull it out. But in the magic box, with Anya, we finally have a scene that serves both of them so well, and we see that Xander isn't at his best when he's quipping. He's at his best when he's honest. You think I'm the hero of this piece? I saw the gun. Before Warren raised it, I, I saw it and I couldn't move. He shot two of my friends before I could even move. You want me to know how useless I am? That it's my fault? Thanks. I already got the memo. It's good to have you back, Brendan. We're gonna need you. Look at me. Do I look weak to you or incapable? Heck no. So why am I stuck here? No good reason I can see. Guys, I've been defending Dawn all season, and while what she does in this episode is risky and stupid, I like it. She's a kid, surrounded by superheroes, surrounded by danger, and physically she's the most vulnerable person in the Scoobies. The kleptomania and the whining were annoying. This Dawn, the one who takes charge and takes action, even when she probably shouldn't. I dig this Dawn. She's brave. She's smart. She's active. And Clem as the sidekick is just adorable. I love his good nature, his kindness, his empathy. And I kind of love that he is helpless to say no to Dawn. Out of all the characters that have ever been on Buffy, humans and demons alike, 
Clem is ironically the purest soul in the bunch, and I love that we gave that soul to a demon. While it plays holy hell with the world building and requires a retcon that essentially rejiggers and wholly complicates the entire premise of the show, I just don't care. Bring on the complication and the cognitive dissonance. For Clem, it's worth it. When they finally get to Rax, it's only then that I realize that I have no idea what Dawn's plan is. I mean, I like that she has one, but when she goes into the room and calls for Willow, I'm conflicted. On the one hand, good for you, Donnie. You were smart. You predicted what Willow was going to do, where she was going to go. On the other hand, what on God's green earth did you think you were going to be able to do about it? I mean, I like your plug, kid. It's stupid, but I like it. When Willow confronts her, calls her whiny, and threatens to turn her back into a mystical ball of energy, you can see the conflict within Willow. She doesn't get nasty until Dawn brings up Tara, until the pain comes close enough. And then she goes in for the kill. And you can see it. She's looking for the line she can't cross, the thing that would close all doors behind her forever, and killing Dawn would absolutely be that thing. Lucky for both Dawn and Willow, Buffy shows up in the nick of time. The forces inside you are incredibly powerful. They're strong, but you're stronger. You have to remember you're still Willow. Buffy has been a bit sidelined in this episode. There's so much going on, and this really isn't her fight. For the first time in the history of the show, she's neither the protagonist nor the antagonist in the final showdown. She's simply an obstacle our antagonist, Dark Willow, needs to get through to prevent our protagonist, Light Willow, from coming back. In the showdown at the Magic Box, the big fight between a buffed-up Willow and our indomitable Slayer, I always get sidetracked from the heartbreak of watching two people who love each other try to destroy each other and just get caught up in how fun it is to see Sarah Michelle Gellar and Allison Hannigan get to fight it out on equal ground power-wise. After all these years with Willow as the sidekick, this has a bizarro world feel to it that just tickles me. And you know how I love bizarro worlds. For me, the fighty-fighty kick-kick of it all goes on a little bit long. I don't care much for extended fight scenes. You punch, I punch, you quip, I quip. But as this battle escalates and things seem really bad for Buffy, I get back into it. And this is when the fiction takes over again and I start to feel the pain of love turned to battle. And then. And then. And there's no one in the world who has the power to stop me now. I'd like to test that theory. Oh my god, it's Giles! Well, I was, you know, she packed her own lunches and wore floods and was always just Willow. She's it! What was that? Just Willow. We've been talking a lot about the splashback nature of vengeance, about the difference between vengeance and justice, all from the distanced intellectual standpoint. Because that's the place where it's easier to stand. The ground is level, it's stable, it's not shaking us under our feet. But here we are in the midst of everything with Dark Willow. And I think we need to talk a bit about what it's like inside the maelstrom. What it's like to be so hurt, so ripped apart, that darkness is all that's left. When the pain is too much, when it's too great, when dealing with it and processing it properly isn't an option, darkness is a solace. Yes, you lose yourself in it, but you lose the part that hurts, the part that is so unbearable you can't face it anyway. And at that point, you just don't care. Consequences? Who cares about consequences? Let them come. What could possibly be worse than that pain? 
So while it is easy and proper and right that we acknowledge how vengeance slices into the soul of the deliverer, let's also acknowledge that when the soul has already been slashed and left in tatters, vengeance isn't just darkness. It's peace. It's clarity. It's something you can understand, something you can wrap your mind around, something you can hold on to, to use as kind of a dark matter flashlight to guide you through a mire of writhing, twisty pain. It's wrong. I'm not going to say it's not wrong, but as Willow dives headfirst into that cavern, I'm also not going to say that I don't get it. When the light in your life goes out, you move into darkness, not because you choose it, because that's all that's left. Or at least... It seems that way. It feels that way, but there's always light. There's always a flicker. After an eruption, the world is covered in ash and everything seems dark, but the light is still out there. It's just not reaching you at that moment. If you can hold on and breathe through it, if you can have faith, if you can wait, the light will return and claim you again. But Willow right now is choking on ash and it seems like that's all there is. So while it's absolutely wrong, while her actions are only going to make things worse, while it's clear to us from the outside that light is still shining, from inside the storm, it's dark. So, so dark. So two to go is where I go into the storm with Willow. Here is where I feel her pain, her anger, her inability to hold on to the faith that the light is still out there somewhere. Here is where I live in it with her, and I understand why she's doing what she's doing. I'm living in that darkness with her now because this is what fiction does for us. It allows us to live with her while still knowing that the light awaits. So that when we are covered in the ash of hopelessness of our own volcanic eruptions, we can remember that the light waited for Willow and it will wait for us too. And in those moments, if we can just hold on and not let the darkness swallow us, the light will come again. It hasn't for Willow. Not yet. But I think it's important to live in this with her for that reason. We all have times in our lives when the darkness is overwhelming. Leonard Cohen said there's a crack in everything. It's how the light gets in. Eventually, the darkness always cracks. It cannot stand up to the light. It isn't powerful enough. Don't get me wrong. It's powerful. It's just not powerful enough. So if you are in that darkness, if you remember that darkness, or if you fear the darkness descending or returning, there's a crack in everything. The light will come back. You will see it. You will find it. Have faith. And in the meantime, just try not to flay anyone. Let me tell you something about Willow. She's a loser. And she always has been. People picked on Willow in junior high school, high school, up until college. With her stupid, mousy ways. And now... Willow's a junkie. In narrative theory, conflict comes from two people at odds with mutually exclusive goals. Every season, this plays out with a Buffy versus. Buffy versus the master, Buffy versus Angelus, Buffy versus the mayor, Buffy versus Adam, Buffy versus Glory. Here, Buffy is sidelined because this conflict isn't about Buffy at all. It's about Dark Willow versus Light Willow. And that's how internal conflict plays out. You have one person who wants two mutually exclusive things, one character who is, in the end, her own worst enemy. With internal conflict, we see that play out as one side gains mastery and then loses it to the other side. Back and forth, back and forth, ever escalating, until finally, one side wins. Even though we don't see Willow inside trying to fight to get herself back in two to go, we don't need to. We've been watching her struggle with herself all season. In bargaining, we saw her power overwhelm her, and flooded when Giles calls her a rank, arrogant amateur. We see a flash of her darkness when she tells him not to piss her off. 
and then we see it leave just as quickly, when she immediately apologizes. And all the way, she uses a memory spell to get Tara to stop criticizing her use of magic. In Tabula Rasa, she does it again, even after Tara has made it clear how she felt about having her mind messed with. Smashed. Wrecked. Gone. This entire season, Willow has been pinging back and forth, and her friends have watched her and supported her. And now, her ability to pull herself back from the edge has been lost. So even though we don't see Light Willow inside, we know she's in there. Xander knows she's in there. Buffy knows she's in there. Her friends are the representation of Light Willow fighting for control. People who know her and love her are reaching out to her, trying to get their Willow to listen to them. This season has been about internal conflict all along. Buffy wants to feel, wants to connect, but can't, except when she's with Spike. Spike wants to be a man, but can't help being a monster. Tara wants Willow, but can't be with her. Dawn wants to be part of the gang, but keeps acting out and creating more distance and conflict. Anya wants her life with Xander and denies who she is in order to have it. Even the trio is internally conflicted when you see them as one entity, a group antagonist. Internal conflict is a powerful source of conflict, and while we have external conflicts throughout the season, while we have this interesting big-ish bad in the geek trio allowing us to muse over human versus demon evil, this season is really about the internal battle everyone wages constantly, and it's smarter and better than most people give it credit for. That'll do it for today. I'll be back next time with Season 6, Episode 22, Grave. Until then, stay pretty. Still Pretty is a chipperish media production and is entirely patron-supported. To find out how you can keep us in production, visit patreon.com slash chipperish.